Hey, great to see all of you uh, here today. Uh, my wife Melanie and I uh, are normal regular attenders at 9 o'clock, but uh, we don't often get to interact with you here at 1045, so it's so good to uh, be with you. Uh, one of the great opportunities I have throughout the course of the year is to preach and minister in different churches, and that's always fun, but one of the great things about being at South Fellowship is in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, we have about the best worship band in the city. So let's give Aaron and his team a hand. <laughs> a few weeks back, if you've been here with us, uh, Ryan started a new series on discerning the will of God. And uh, he had contacted me about six weeks ago about preaching this Sunday. And I think originally he thought it was gonna be a transitional Sunday, but last week he said, hey, uh, I'm gonna keep going on the series and we're gonna look at some case studies. So I thought what I'd like to do today is present a text that I hope will function as something of a case study on the will of God for you and for me. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna walk through this text together and then we'll see what the Lord uh, would have for us as we move forward as the followers of Jesus in the early 21st century. So can I get you to join your hearts with me in prayer? Father, you are a great and awesome God, and we thank you so much for your unsurpassing love. Lord, I thank you for every person here, and Lord, I know that we bring in issues and concerns and struggles, and so wherever we're at today, Lord, we pray that you would meet us and give us your grace and your guidance. I'd also like to pray for our government this morning, Lord. It uh, just seems so tangled, and so we pray for our leaders today. I pray for the president. I pray for our Congress. I pray that you would give them a spirit of wisdom by your common grace, a spirit of guidance, maybe even a spirit of cooperation. And Lord, as we look out over the larger world, we see lots of issues and concerns, but we also know that through your church, you're doing great, great, great things advancing the kingdom of God. We see that globally. We also see that locally. Thank you so much for South Fellowship and the other churches in this area. May you continue to keep your hand of blessing on them as we all seek to advance the gospel in Denver and Littleton and Englewood. And now, Lord, as we look into this text, this passage, your word, I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you might enlighten our minds and touch our hearts and use this passage to show us how you're leading and guiding us in the days ahead. And we ask this now in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning comes out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, starting in verse 21. Uh, the apostle says this, uh, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, 
Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, does anybody here besides me think that Jesus seems to be a little rude to this woman? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe even a little bit mean. I mean, I've got to share with you that for years and years, whenever I came across this particular episode in the life of Jesus, it really, really bothered me because it seemed so inconsistent with other facets of his life and the way he normally responded to other people, even really, really sinful people like tax collectors and prostitutes. Uh, but over the last few years, I've been very, very blessed to be given some books by some great scholars and teachers like Ken Bailey and John Ortberg and Dale Bruner. And as a result of uh, reading them and studying this text, it's now become one of my all-time favorite episodes in terms of how Jesus deals with people. Uh, let me try to explain what's going on here and now why I love this text so much. Um, as you know, Jesus was the master teacher. And as a teacher, he knew that sometimes you lecture and sometimes you model, and sometimes you give your students experiences in order to help them grow. Um, and Jesus was an expert at what some educators and psychologists call deliberately induced frustration. <laughs> uh, for example, he tells his disciples to feed all these crowds, but they don't have any food. Uh, he tells them to get in a boat when a really, really big storm is coming up and it's really dangerous. Uh, he tells them to cast out demons. They're not able to do that. Uh, see, Jesus regularly used deliberately induced frustration to probe his disciples, find out where they were at emotionally, see what was going on with them spiritually, and see how they were doing on the spiritual growth chart. Now, that's part, that's part of what he's doing in this episode, but that's not all that he's doing. Uh, as you know, uh, teachers also give tests on a consistent basis, and Jesus did that as well. Uh, not long ago, just a moment ago, I mentioned Ken Bailey. Uh, well, Dr. Bailey was one of the finest New Testament scholars of the last generation, and he says that in order to understand what's going on in this counter in this text between Jesus and the Canaanite woman, we must first understand that Jesus 
is testing two sets of people. First of all, he's testing the woman. But secondly, he's testing the disciples. Now, in just a moment, we're going to see that the test the woman gets is very different from the test that the disciples get. And so, as we walk through this story verse by verse, I want us to try to determine who passes their test, who aces their test, and who doesn't do quite so well, who maybe gets an incomplete That's our goal as we look at this text. But then most important of all, I want us to see what these tests have to teach you and me as we walk forward in the way of Jesus in the year 2019 and following. Well, to discern all that, what we first have to do is understand the background to this encounter. As the text says in verse 21, This episode takes place in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were these two Phoenician cities that were northwest up here on the coast of the Mediterranean, northwest of Galilee. That region was considered absolutely pagan by the Jews. And the Jews really, really, really despised the people who lived there. The great first century Jewish historian Josephus, who lived about the same time as Jesus, wrote, The people of Tyre and Sidon are our bitterest enemies. I suspect that that's probably how a lot of Israelis today feel exactly about a lot of Palestinians. And to see just how badly the Jews regarded the people of Tyre and Sidon, All we have to do is look at Jesus' words of judgment in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. See, in that passage, what Jesus did was he warned the Jewish people of the cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida that if he had done his miracles in Tyre and Sidon, those pagan Canaanites would have repented immediately. In other words, what Jesus was telling the Jews in those cities was this. Even the most wicked people you know, the bottom of the spiritual and moral barrel, people who sacrifice their children to the fires of their gods and goddesses, those people would have repented if they had seen the miracles I had done. Well, here's the point. The disciples because they were good Jewish boys, raised in that environment, would have automatically regarded this Canaanite woman as their hated enemy. They would have viewed her as a member of the most spiritually degraded, morally repulsive group of people they knew. Her people were the worst of the worst of the worst. And so in their eyes, she's a complete outcast. But notice what she does here and how she approaches Jesus. She approaches him with the traditional cry of a beggar. Have mercy on me. And as we just saw from the full reading of the text, she adds the word Lord to her petition. Now, while the word Lord could be interpreted as sir or master, as well as Lord in the divine sense. The fact is, she repeats that two more times in this story. 
And she calls Jesus the son of David, which is a term that's only used for the Messiah. So it's really, really clear that she understands something of Judaism and their expectation of a messianic kingdom. But what we need to note here is she's really humble. She's deeply, deeply respectful. She's willing to cross some ethnic and gender boundaries that simply were not crossed in her day. But look again at verse 23. Jesus did not answer her a word. Friends, let's keep this in mind. This is real history. This really, really, really happened. Her daughter is right there. She's suffering terribly. And so as the woman comes to Jesus and appeals to him with humility and reverence and intelligence, he acts like he doesn't hear. He responds with crickets. Silence. And what appears to be indifference. And maybe even rejection. And that must have felt really, really, really bad to her. Now let's notice. Matthew does not try to hide this. He was there. He was part of the apostolic band. And he's recording this later, and he doesn't want to hide this fact from us. He deliberately draws attention to it in the text because he wants us to grapple with what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving a test. And tests are not always pleasant to the ones being tested. Now, I'm a professional educator. Actually, I'm a pastor who masquerades as a professional educator, but I'm a professional educator. And as some of you in here who have been in my classes know, I like to give tests. They're fun. <laughs> well, one of my favorite all-time school stories about testing is about this young guy in Southern California. And he was taking a summer school college class in ornithology, which is the study of birds. Well, the professor of the class had a reputation for being really, really tough, really difficult especially on his exams. So this young guy studies his brains out for the test, studies days in advance, wants to make sure he passes the test. Well, he comes in feeling pretty confident, but instead of the normal multiple choice exam or true-false exam, there are 25 pictures of bird's feet hanging on the walls of the classroom. He's supposed to identify the species of bird by looking at their feet. Well, the kid goes nuts. He tells the teacher, this is crazy. Nobody can pass this test. And the teacher says, well, nevertheless, you got to take it. The kid says, I'm not going to take it. The teacher says, well, you got to take it or you're going to fail. And the kid says, well, you go ahead and fail me, but I'm not going to take this test. Well, by this point, the professor's gotten pretty amped up. And he stands up and he says, all right, that's it. You failed. What's your name? And in a moment of great insight, the kid stands up, kicks off his sandals, points at his feet, and says, you tell me. <laughs> now, dialing back to our text, Jesus is giving this suffering, pagan, Canaanite woman, a really, really hard test.
and she has to make a decision in the face of his silence. How deeply do I want healing for my daughter? How far am I willing to go to get her help? How much am I willing to trust this Jewish rabbi? But we also need to realize that at the same time, Jesus is giving the disciples a test. See, as good Hebrew boys, they're not at all surprised that Jesus would be silent in the face of her request. Because they had been taught since they were really, really young that no rabbi would talk to a woman, let alone a pagan woman, from Tyre and Sidon. Ever since they were little kids, they had heard this ancient rabbinic saying, He that talks with womankind brings evil on himself, neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna, which is hell. So as disciples, as good Jewish guys, they're not at all taken back that Jesus seems to ignore. But what they don't get is that he's also testing them. Do they understand his heart for everyone, including Gentiles and women, including Gentile, pagan, Canaanite women? Do they understand? Do they really, really understand what he's all about? Well, verse 23 is pretty clear that they respond pretty strongly. Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. John Ortberg makes what I think is a brilliant and wonderful insight in his exposition of this text by noting that their response here is pretty grandiose. I mean, she hasn't said anything to him. She comes to Jesus. But they very generously include themselves in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' power. She's bothering us. They always need us. Everybody wants a piece of us. Send her away, Jesus. I mean, they're the disciples. They're the ones in the know. They're the ones who are connected to him. They're the inner circle. What they want to do is they want to put a wall around Jesus and keep everybody out. You know, by nature, human beings are actually really pretty good about building walls, especially walls against other people. I mean, the last five weeks, we've all lived with the reality that there's been this huge wall between President Trump and Speaker Pelosi, supposedly over a wall, but I think it's over much, much more than that. But it's not just politicians that create walls between themselves and other people, is it? I mean, if you've been a parent here and you've ever had kids in the backseat of the car, you know they create walls. You better not cross that line, otherwise I'm telling mom. Sometimes, 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 maybe not often in your case, but sometimes there's walls between husbands and wives, aren't there? I know when Melanie and I get tangled up and there's a wall, that doesn't feel too good, but it happens. 
Sometimes walls are built between people who work together. Certainly walls get built between races and cultures and nations. All you have to do is turn on the news and you see that. Friends, let me ask us a question, and I'm asking myself this as well. This is an individual question for us to process a little bit. Are we building walls towards other people, or are we inviting them into relationship with us? Now, let me ask us a question as a church family, a church body here at South. Are we building walls in our church body? Or, or, or hopefully, are we building relationships, especially with new people as they come in through the doors? As we look at this passage here in Matthew chapter 15, it's really clear that there is this huge, huge wall between this pagan Gentile woman and these 12 self-important disciples. And Jesus knows that. And so what he does is he goes on to give part two of his tests to both the disciples and the woman. Look what he says in verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now that raises a question if you've read other portions of Matthew's gospel or other portions of the other gospels. Why, why does Jesus say this? I mean, on so many other occasions, in both word and deed, it's clear he doesn't want any to perish. He's come to minister to everyone and anyone who will accept him. In fact, at one point, Jesus said this. He said, when the kingdom finally arrives, many will come from east and they will come from west and they will sit down and they will dine at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the east and the west is code for Gentiles. So why does Jesus say this here? When in fact, as we read the text, he responds to her request later on. Jesus is giving the disciples an experiential test. See, he, he could lecture them about the value of every person. He could do a little bit of big-time theology and talk about the image of God and every person that this woman has that. He could remind them of the necessity of meeting the needs of people, especially when they come to you and they're in a deep, hard situation. But in this case, he wants it to be more experiential. He wants them to feel this woman's pain. He wants them to learn at least a little bit to empathize with her struggle. He wants them to hear her cry out as her daughter screams in agony. So even though on the surface it appears by his statement here in verse 24 that he agrees with the disciples... Friends, we need to note this crucial fact. Jesus does not send her away. See, it's an experiential test for the disciples. He wants to know if any of them, if any of them will, will disagree with him. He wants to know if one of them might come up and say, Hey, hey Jesus, you, you remember that sermon you preached not too long ago where you said we're 
supposed to love our enemies? Or maybe another one would stand up and say, hey, hey, Lord, I know she's a pagan Gentile, but don't you think you could make an exception in her case? Or maybe even, Jesus, Jesus, look at, look at her little girl. She's, she's really suffering. She's in tremendous pain. You've got the gift of Jesus. Couldn't you cast out that demon? See, what Jesus wants to know is this. Do any of you guys have the guts to stand up for this woman and her daughter? Back in 2003, I was invited very graciously, I might add, by the city and county of Denver to serve on grand jury duty for the whole year. <laughs> and so every other Wednesday for the entire year of 2003, I went down to the city and county building of Denver and I went down into the basement and there we were enclosed in this room along with the district attorney's office. And we assisted the district attorney's office for the entire year of investigating and then prosecuting criminal activity. And we investigated and prosecuted all kinds of things, all the way from petty larceny to gang murders. But one of the most disturbing and distressing cases that we investigated had to do with the beating death of this two-year-old little girl by the name of Alizé Rygard. A distant relative had at one point called into the, the police department and social services and said, something's wrong with her. She's, she's acting really weird, and, and I think something wrong is going on. And so the district attorney's office got involved, and they arrested the mother and the, the stepfather. And so we brought them in and questioned them. We questioned all these other relatives, all these other family, all these other neighbors. And everybody got under the witness stand, and under oath, they all lied to their teeth that they didn't know anything was going on said they never saw a thing. And no one would stand up for that little baby girl. See, at this point, at this point, the disciples won't stand up for this woman and her daughter. But what we need to realize is that at the exact same time that Jesus is testing the disciples, He's making the woman go through part two of her test. I mean, after all, what she just heard in this statement right here, if I could unpack it, is this. Hey, you're an outsider. I'm the son of David, and I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not my mission. You're not part of my strategic plan. You're not on my list of goals and objectives and people to be ministered to this year. So why... Should I serve you? And once again, here's the test question for her. Is her concern for her daughter so deep, her conviction about Jesus' compassion and power so strong that she will persevere in her petition even when he seems unwilling? Even when he makes statements like this? Well, notice what she does. Verse 25. She comes and kneels before him and she utters this single phrase, the cry from deep, deep, deep down in her heart, Lord, help me. Now, friends, remember, this is real history. This really happened. She's over here with her daughter. Jesus is here. And those 12 disciples are right here. They're looking at this whole thing. They're watching this. 
And you just got to believe that the tension in them starts to build. And the reason it's starting to build is because their theology, what they've been taught since they were little tiny kids, is that this woman, this Canaanite pagan woman, and people like her were to be shunned, ignored, and turned away. And yet, something inside them may be beginning to get touched. Maybe they're being emotionally moved a little bit. This is the desperate cry of a mom for her little girl who's in deep, deep, deep emotional, spiritual, and physical agony. Could it be, could it be that in their minds they're beginning to wonder, is God bigger than the theology we were taught? And so what Jesus does, he pushes them. He moves on to a really difficult part two of their test. He gives voice to their theology. Look what he says. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, the meaning of this statement to the disciples and the woman is really, really clear. The children were Israelites, Jews the chosen people of God. The dogs were people who were Gentiles, pagans, like this woman. See, in ancient Near Eastern culture, dogs were despised animals. They were viewed as scavengers and garbage eaters. In Jewish society, they were viewed almost as unclean as pigs. Now, that's not true in our culture, is it? (laughs) Uh, Here's how we see dogs. I don't know if you heard the story that happened just about a year ago. There was this German shepherd that got put on the wrong plane to the wrong place and ended up in Japan. And the owners were just out of control, and so the airline did everything they could to make amends. They put the dog in a really nice, comfortable case, put the dog in first class, and flew him back home. (laughs) Only in Western civilization. But in Jewish culture, the Jewish home, the Jewish synagogue, anywhere respectable in the local Jewish village, there was no room for dogs. See, in effect, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, you want me to get rid of her? You want me to limit my ministry to Israel and the Jews? Okay, we'll do that. Then you can watch her agony and you can hear the screams of her daughter because you think that they're just dogs. Jesus is using some pretty harsh language here to force the disciples to face themselves. What he's doing here, and this is brilliant, he's giving voice to what they've really been thinking and feeling privately. See, it's one thing, isn't it, to talk about somebody behind their back? Now, maybe you've never done that. I've done that. That's not good. That's not right. It's an entirely different thing, though, to tell somebody to their face what you really think about them, especially if what you think about them is negative and brutal 
and maybe racist or something else really, really horrible. That's an entirely different matter. See, what Jesus is doing here, friends, is he's giving the disciples the relationship test. Will any of you stand up for her? Will any of you reach out to her? Will any of you show her a little bit of love? And the answer is no. And this is the end of their test. Uh, Today, these 12 young guys get an incomplete on their report card. Now, there'll be other tests down the road, and they'll do better. They'll grow. They'll become better and better lovers of everybody. But today, they didn't do too well. They're still learning, but they get an incomplete. Now, here's what's important. Jesus is giving some of us in this room today the exact same test he gave those disciples. It's the relationship test. There's somebody in our life that we're having a hard time offering genuine, authentic, Christ-like love for. Maybe it's somebody we work with or we go to school with. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's somebody here at South Fellowship. Or maybe, maybe, maybe like the disciples, it involves a whole group of people that we have problems with for some reason or other. Maybe it's gay people or African-American people or Hispanic people or poor people. Jesus gives us all the relationship test on a pretty regular basis, and he wants us to pass it by showing other people love. See, my guess is, if not this week, sometime in the near future, you and I both are going to come face to face with the relationship test. Another person's going to come into our life, and you know, they're not particularly friendly or cool or hip or neat or clean. And we're going to be faced with a choice to either ignore them, snub them, or maybe love them. And when that happens, when that happens, will we pray? Lord, will you help me love this person? Lord, will you help me speak with compassion and truth and courage on their behalf if they need it? Lord, in all honesty, this person is really, really hard for me to love. Will you at least help me to be respectful and polite and kind to them as I encounter them? Lord, this person doesn't yet know you, and they're really needy, and I have some resources that could meet their needs. Lord, will you help me help them? Friends, this is the will of God for all of us who claim to be the followers of Jesus. When he gives us the relationship test, his will is that we pass it by showing other people love. But Jesus is also looking for people who can pass another test. And this takes us back to the woman. I mean, in verse 26, when Jesus talks here about the children's bread going to the dogs, there's something really interesting in this text that you only see in the original Greek manuscript. In Greek, there are two words that can be used for dogs. And it's significant in this case that Jesus uses the softer, gentle word here, meaning little doggy or puppy 
or dogette. He's not talking about Doberman Pinscher attack dogs here. He does that for the sake of this woman. And now, 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 she faces the hardest part of the exam. Will she run away? Will she give up? Will she insult Jesus and turn back home? Or, 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 is her love for her daughter so deep, her trust in Jesus so strong, her faith in his compassion so incredible that she won't give up? Well, her response is just incredible. Look at this. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Oh, friends, for the third time, she speaks to him. For the third time, she calls him Lord. Even now, without getting what she wants, she bows to his authority. Now, we need to know that the the tone and flavor of her response here is actually pretty amazing. See, she picks up on Jesus' use of the word doggy or puppy, And then she adds emphasis to that when she uses the words crumbs. Here's how it literally reads in the original. Yes, Lord, but even the little dogettes get the little crumbettes from their master's table. I mean, she comes back at Jesus with some grit and some grace and some wit. I mean, there's a sense of playfulness here, almost like she's starting to verbally spar with Jesus. It's almost like she's got some attitude going. Oh, yeah, right, Lord. Of course, of course, of course. You've got to feed the kids. But I'll bet you, I'll just bet you, you've got some tiny crumbs for me. She's just not going to quit. My wife, Melanie, has a cousin, and her name's Lauren. And Lauren and her husband, Rob, they're just great people. We love them to death. And about three years ago, they decided to do an Ironman deal. And if you do the Ironman, you've got to bike 50 miles and swim three or four miles. And then after you bike and you swim, you've got to run a 26-mile marathon. I mean, the thought of that alone makes me want to go to bed. (laughs) But they did it, and they trained for it. Well, Rob did pretty well. And they start you at 6 in the morning. You've got to finish by midnight. And I think he finished like at 5 in the afternoon. But Lauren was having a really, really hard time. I mean, she finished the swim. She did the bike thing. She's doing the marathon. But at about mile 21 or 22, she was wearing down. And it got to be like 10.30 at night, and they didn't know if she was going to finish. But she decided, I'm just going to keep going one foot in front of the other. And she finally finished about 11.45. She wouldn't quit. She wouldn't give up. And this Canaanite woman is exactly like that. See, friends, she gets the endurance test. She just won't give up. Some of you here this morning are facing this exact same test. Something's going on in your life. It's really, really, really difficult. And you don't know if you're ever going to get any relief. But it's not just that. It's that when you pray, when you kneel, when you beg, you don't understand God's response or his apparent non-response. He seems silent. He seems indifferent. In all honesty, you feel like he's a little bit rude, maybe even hostile. 
So here's the question. Will you keep the faith? Will you grow in faith? Will you pass the endurance test with your faith by not giving up? You know, at this point in my life, I've read quite a bit of church history, and one of the things I've learned about great figures in church history is often in their own day and time, they faced all kinds of opposition, and they weren't considered great at the time. One of those was the great English revivalist of the 18th century, John Wesley. Uh, Wesley came to faith actually rather late in life and in, through some unusual circumstances, and then he felt like he was led of the Lord to evangelize all of England. But in his day and his time, Wesley faced tremendous opposition, enormous hatred. In his day and his time, nobody would have considered Wesley this great revivalist or great evangelist. And in his journal, he talks about this all the time. Let me just give you one section of his journal. Sunday, May 6th, I preached at St. Lawrence's in the morning and afterwards at St. Catherine's. I was able to speak strong words at both, but was informed afterwards that was, I was not to preach in either of those churches ever again. Sunday, May 13th, I preached in the morning at St. Anne's Altersgate and in the afternoon at Savoy Chapel. I preached the message of free salvation by faith in the blood of Jesus. I was quickly apprised that I am to preach no more in either church. Sunday, May 20th, I preached at St. John's Wapping at 3 in the afternoon and at St. Paul Bennett's Paul's Wharf in the evening. At these churches, likewise, I am never to preach again. Sunday, May 27th, I preached at St. Antholin's in the morning and was told not to return. In the evening, I preached at Bath in a field but was chased out by a bull let loose by an angry farmer. <laughs> Sunday, June 3rd, in the morning, I preached near St. Isaac's but was accosted and challenged by a man named Nash who told me my preaching violated an act of parliament. Sunday, June 10th, I declared to about 10,000 in Moorfields that they must be saved. I again insisted on the foundation of our hope. Believe in the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. Hundreds were touched by the grace of God and prayed to receive the Savior. Some of you in here right now are facing the endurance test. And I suspect all of us in here will face it at some point in the future. So the only question is, is will we keep going in faith even when we don't know why or if we'll get an answer? When you can't get any answers to your prayers that could make the pain go away, will you say, you're my Lord and you will always be my Lord even if your ways are not clear to me? Will you keep going with grit and grace and even wit and live in faith that one day, one day, one day, the Lord of all things will make things right. The Canaanite woman in this story not only amazed Jesus, she blew the disciples away in terms of spiritual commitment. They've never seen anybody with such confidence in the Lord or demonstrate such all-out, pedal-to-the-metal, risk-taking faith. See, when she approached Jesus, they thought that they were watching their inferior, the spiritual bottom of the barrel, a dog that they never let into their circle of fellowship. 
but it turns out that she's been relating to Jesus on a level of humility, reverence, and faith that they can't quite achieve. So Jesus looks her in the eye. The mask comes off. The test is over, and now it's time for the grades to be given out. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. As you see here, the word great comes from the Greek word mega. In our society, we use it for mega malls and mega millions and mega churches. She had mega faith. This poor, pagan, Canaanite woman who everybody thought was the bottom of the spiritual barrel. She's honored and praised by the one before whom she knelt and she called Lord and whom she would not let go of. She got an A plus on the endurance exam. So friends, let me ask you, are you getting the relationship test today? Then respond with love. Are you getting the endurance test today? Then hang on through thick and thin and show Jesus your mega faith. The tests are going to come. You and I can count on that. And when they do, let's step out in love and let's step up in faith. And when we do, Jesus is going to smile at us and he's going to go, well done, well done, well done. You passed the test. You're a good and faithful servant of mine walking in my way. And that's my will for you. Let me pray for us. And Aaron and the team are going to come back up and close us with some music. Father, thanks so much for everybody that's here, wherever we're at today, Lord. We pray for your grace. We pray for your strength. We pray for the power of your spirit in our lives. Give us a good day and a good week serving you and others. And we ask this in the great name of Christ. Amen.